Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Toast. <laughs> toast. Yeah, toast. It's a good uh, testing mechanism that uh, uh, Ethan Hunt did when he broke into uh, the CIA in Langley. Ah, uh, yes. Remember that document? Mission Impossible. <laughs> Remember that yes, thing? The, the, the Mission Impossible historical documents, yes. And he's like, toast. <laughs> I, I think that was an outtake. <laughs> but whatever the case is, we have the week off because what we finished... Our, our, our three-part series on the slits. We're almost done with our, you know, 10-band series uh, and plus a little extra. And uh, we need that extra week. We do to get into the cramps because that's what we're doing. That's right. Yes. And, and also, welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And I'm excited, oh, ex- except we're not really taking the whole week off. No. In fact, instead of taking, you know, just going dark for a week, we figured we'd give you guys a little bit of a treat, a little bit of an extra, and we got an interview with Alan Arkish, the director of Rock and Roll High School. I know. This is a big get. It was, <laughs> it's really, really cool. Um, thank you to the people. Some people send us messages with screenshots of Alan Arkish saying like he listened to the show. And that's why we reached out to him and asked if it's okay if he'd like spend some time with us. And he was like super cool. Like actually we spent a pretty much the afternoon together yeah. which is <laughs> i learned yeah. a lot yeah seeing his gigantic record collection over skype uh yeah this guy's he's super cool i mean he's been involved in the music scene for a long time even before he uh, directed rock and roll high school of course rock and roll high school was a movie that the ramones uh started in so if you haven't listened to our ramones series yet go and listen to our ramones series and, you know we talk about rock and roll high school in part three i believe yes uh but even before he was involved in rock and roll high school like he worked at the uh Fillmore East which is one of the most legendary music venues of the late 60s early 70s uh he was uh an usher there he was a ticket taker uh at Bill Graham's uh Fillmore East and, and he's got he a lot of cool stories up, about though. that yeah he got to stage crew like he got to hang out like not hang out but he got to bring beer to the bands <laughs> brought beer to Led Zeppelin that's yeah. so cool <laughs> yeah so I mean this is so this is our interview with him we talk about you know the Fillmore East we talk about uh 
Rock and Roll High School and Roger Corman. Yes, because he started out with Roger Corman, of course, and Roger Corman producing Rock and Roll High School and Ro- Roger Corman being like, well, they call him the king of B-movies, uh, which is which is not necessarily true. I mean, yes, there are B-movies and he is the king. Oh, God, that is true. He's known for tits. But he, <laughs> his movie, the king of masterpieces. The king of masterpieces. I mean, he's, he's sort of a 1960s, 1950s, 1960s version of like Lloyd Kaufman, you know, from Troma, you know, who gave a start to a lot of directors that, you know, have been big over the last like 20 years. Roger Corman gave the starts to Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, James Cameron, James Cameron and Alan Arkish. Uh, so, yeah, Roger Corman is like a big figure in, you know, the world of, you know, cinema in the 60s and 70s, American cinema. He's a very he's one of the behind the scenes guys uh, that's also legendary. And also, uh, as I said, love tits because <laughs> it sells make everything blow up if you can so yeah so let's uh, get into our interview with alan arkish uh and start with uh the fillmore east uh hearkening back to uh, our stooges series to a story we told in that series alan was actually there yes and he definitely gave us the real like story of everything because we heard so many different rumors and so this is the real thing from the guy who was there this is it so thank you very much and enjoy the interview Well, uh, Alan, thank you so much for for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, just before we started recording, you told us that you were at to going back to our Stooges series. Uh, you were at the Fillmore East show where the MC Five showed up in a limo and caused a riot. Correct. I was there. What happened? Okay. Context. Okay. This is the East Village in about 19, late 60s, you know. So you have an area which is um, really, as the kids today call it, sketchy, okay? And I had moved there because I wanted, it was to me the center of the universe. And um, I was gonna go to NYU Film School. So I'd gotten into there. So I lived on the corner of 2nd Avenue at 10th Street. And about the second or third day, I was walking down the street and I saw Allen Ginsberg, who lived on 10th Street now, mm. and shopped in the same bodega. <laughs> in my building was an organization called the Motherfuckers. Yes, yes, the <laughs> Motherfuckers. <laughs> and Abby Hoffman was in and out of my building all the time. And the woman who had to go underground for blowing up some buildings, some draft officers, Bernardine Dorn lived in the building. And that's the flow of the neighborhood. And this organization, the motherfuckers, had a political stance, which was everything should be free. It's concise. It's short. You know? <laughs> and they actually had a store where they gave away stuff for free. And they used to have free food in front of my apartment building. Um, and the East Village Other, which was the East Village newspaper, um, was in the same building of free rent to Bill Graham. 
All these things made Bill Graham in their minds still the enemy of the people because he had the nerve to take our music and charge three, four, and five dollars a piece. <laughs> it is a rip off, man. Yeah. <laughs> three dollars? Oh, three man. Dollars. <laughs> you mean three dollars and all I get for my three dollars is Miles Davis, the Steve Miller Band, and Neil Young and Crazy Horse? <laughs> That's the backdrop, right? Yeah. And when the Fillmore East opened, you just went there and you bought tickets. And I was working there as an usher. When Bill Graham opened, he saw that, okay, this is going to work. Rock and roll music in a concert setting. Because no one had done that. Remember, just a dance, dances before that yeah. was going to work. And so he bought the building across the street, the Village Theater, and turned it into the Fillmore East. And that became an anchor in the neighborhood, you know, which was welcomed by all the stores, certainly welcomed by, you know, kids who like rock and roll, because you could go to East Village, go to St. Mark's Place, buy yourself some bell bottoms, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever, and go around the corner and see opening night at the Fillmore East, Albert King, uh, Tim Buckley, and Big Brother and the Holding Company, you know. And two weeks later was The Who, which you can still buy, that live Who uh, CD. Yeah. And into that whole atmosphere, there was a pressure in the neighborhood that Bill Graham was ripping us off. That was like the, the mantra. And he let the East Village uh, newspaper use the office for free in the building and decided that there was going to be a free con. The motherfuckers wanted to have, the whole organization wanted to have access to the film more so they could have local art yeah. and local yeah. theater for free. And so they did that every Tuesday night. And it was, you know, I mean, it was not at that level. It was disorganized and, and we as ushers had to take care of it. Um, it was a group called the Living Theater, which was like um, the Grateful Dead of theatrical troops kind of thing. They would run through the audience and scream in your face, you do not need a passport. <laughs> um, and they got naked on stage. And, you know, if you get naked on stage with 30 people in the East Village in the late 60s, it was soon it was 150 people. And in that context is where the MC5 came in for electric records, not a real Fillmore East concert but one for Electra to promote the MC5 on a night for the people so it could be free. Mm -hmm. So these two forces came together, you know, the MC5 come in and, and, you know, there was the poetry and all this stuff. And then when they hit the stage, um, they had American flags on their Marshall stacks. And I had heard loud music before this. I'd heard Blue Cheer. I'd been in the theater of Blue Cheer, and I'd say The Who were loud. And yeah. Hendrix, you could feel your hairs. And <laughs> when they start to play the flags, literally, <laughs> flat, <laughs> on the first notes, you know. And they played an excruciatingly loud but exciting set. And that, towards the end, when they wouldn't come out for an encore or whatever it was, the audience was dissatisfied. Yeah. And, um, they started jumping up on the stage and they pretty much, as I remember, chased the MC5 out of the building. Yes. Um, I think that's where in some of the versions I've heard that the, the, 
the fact that they had a limo. Yeah, the version that we heard, yeah, that they didn't even, the version we heard, they didn't even get on stage. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, they played. They played. I remember them playing Rocket Ship Number 9. Yeah. You know, and that was great. And they did the whole, you know, are you part of problem? Are you part of that whole speech? You know, at the beginning, I give you a testimonial. Yeah. <laughs> MC5, man, let me tell you. <laughs> primal rock moment. You know? Was it true that the MC5 were actually banned from the Fillmore East? Well, Danny Fields admits that it was his idea to get the limo. He didn't think <laughs> twice about it, you know? Yeah. yeah. It was just like, I got to get these lunatics downtown. I'm not going to take the subway with them, and I can't do it in three cabs, good, you know? <laughs> and I think with the encouragement of that concert, there was a lot of people chairing up the chairs and stuff and jumping up and down. And so that's the context that they did that in. And that's, I don't know the ins and outs of why the MC5 were banned. I just think that Electric kind of took a lot of the blame for it. But Jack Holtzman was there all the time because he had all these bands. They had a band called the Incredible String Band that was really kind of sweet. Mm -hmm. Uh, rhinoceros and uh, clear light and there's all these different electro bands so well that that kind of brings up a, an interesting question it was something that I wanted to ask you about is you know the the MC5 story that we heard you know the Fillmore East you know it's kind of reality but not really like it, it's close to reality like as someone yeah. who is there like and has listened to a little bit of our show like how many times have you listened to our show and thought like that's not the way it happened at all <laughs> like, <laughs> like, or it's like because you know that's the thing about rock and roll like that the legend is what gets printed okay here's what I like i'm like walking along and you, i think you were talking about dylan going electric or something yeah and <clears throat> You kind of got the facts right, but the, where you put the emphasis was really interesting to me, you know, mm -hmm. because um, there was a background to it that at the time I didn't really understand, but I do now in context. So certain times you'll say stuff and I go, that's pretty much what happened, but what they're missing is, you yeah. know, and, which is fine. That's why I really enjoy the show because, oh, um, first off, it sounds like a conversation. And having done a lot of public speaking in my life and being teaching at the AFI, you can take all the facts you want, but you and Carolyn are really good at turning it into a narrative. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, you know? so much. We work, we work really hard at that. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, if you were students in my class, I'd say, good, you got the narrative thing down, you know, and the humor and... You know, and I like that you laugh at your own jokes. You know? Yes, we can't help it. <laughs> we really can't. That's just us being socially awkward people. <laughs> yeah, yes, but it, it's, that's what makes it really enjoyable. So, so you do really well. You know? oh, but listen, when people, my wife says to me all the time, when I tell one of these stories, and she'll say, that's not the way you told it before. I said, no, I'm working on it. <laughs> I thought it would be fun to have my daughters on the show. And then they could say, no, Dad, that's not the way you told me. <laughs> <laughs> Them sitting in the back just being like, uh, let me interject here. <laughs> you might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. 
Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. I mean, you said uh, in an interview, like, go, let's let's move on to, like, let's say, like, the mid-70s here. Like, you said in an interview that CBGB's back in the 70s was the place you went to when nothing else was open. Like, how did clubs, like, you know, a- after working at Fillmore East, how did clubs like CB's, Max's Kansas City, Ungano's, Mercer Art Center, like, how did, how did that feel like when in New York City when those punk clubs were starting to come up? Okay, so I, after, at the end of the Fillmore, or towards the end of the Fillmore East, I joined, well, actually, I graduated from college in 70, so I jo- I was asked to join the light show, which had just been Joshua Light Show and now was called Joe's Lights, because I knew them working backstage really well, and they had been in my student film. They'd done title sequence, and they were in the rock scenes and stuff. Mm-hmm. My whole student film was shot at the Fillmore East. I can't believe that Bill Graham gave me the Fillmore East to shoot it in. It's so nice, you know. And so uh, a friend of mine lived on Bleecker Street, the Bowery. This is when the Bowery was full of people lying on the sidewalk and drunk and, and, and flop houses and so forth. And that's where we built light show equipment. And across the street was a biker bar that you went into when nothing else was open and that became CBGB's. Um, so that was just like, oh God, (laughs) 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 if I don't get something in my style, I, you know, what, let's just get a beer and go back to work, you know, because we work around the clock making equipment and stuff for lighting crews and stuff. So, and Max's conflicted for me with the film work because I was working there. So that 60s scene, was happening there, but I never ex- didn't get to go there because people would go from the Fillmore to Max's, you know, so I was still working. So around 71, I left New York and went to London mm-hmm. to do light shows and open a theater there called the Rainbow Theater. And the opening band there at uh, that weekend, we had done 25 shows with them at this point, was The Who. So when I got back to New York, I was broke and there was clubs and stuff, but I moved to the West Village and I didn't have any money. And I saved all my money and I came out to LA to work for Roger Corman about 70, October, I think it's 4th, 1973, I remember it. I had $400. And during that time, I guess that's when the New York Dolls and the Mercer Center and all that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. I had been, and since 1965, a reader of the Village Voice. And that was my lifeline, a Village Voice reading that incredibly well curated rock section. So I read Village Voice, um, and everyone that Robert Christgau, I believe he was the editor, and Christgau's Consumer Guide was great. And I had met him at the Fillmore when he was just starting critics. So now he had a column, and Lisa Robinson, and mm-hmm. um, I read Cream Magazine. And the magazine I adored that changed my life was Crawdaddy. 
Do you mm. know a crawdaddy? I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah I think we've re- we've come across a couple of crawdaddy interviews in our researches. Yeah, it was first rock magazine, and it was college kids writing articles about um, uh, rock. Uh, they would write about the birds with the seriousness they had written about Dostoevsky right. for their Russian literature class. And John Landau wrote for that magazine. And Sandy, who later went on to produce Springsteen, and Sandy Perlman, who produced uh, um, Blue Oyster Cult, and so forth. So that was a really good magazine. Um, So that's how I had my information. And I came back here, and then I moved out to L.A. So I was at a distance from all of this. And that's when I read about CBGBs, and I heard about the talking heads, you know, and that would be filtered through the voice and through Danny Field's column, which was it was so weird. It was in like this teen beat. It'd be pictures of like, uh, oh God, who is that? Bobby Sherman, whoever, yeah. you know. David and Cassidy, then, yeah. And then a, a photo spread on the New York Dolls, <laughs> which <laughs> nobody who read that could. It was, it was like idiot bastard child. Yeah. <laughs> So I used to read that, and um, and I started reading and hearing about uh, at some point about the Ramones. That's where I first heard about the Ramones was in that that new in the Village Voice. And Christogal, I used to buy obviously a lot of records, and Christogal's Consumer Guide was a great way to hear figure out what was coming. And if he gave it an A. I would pretty much buy it. Yeah. You know? yeah. And if he gave it an A pick of the month, I'd drive to Tower Records to get it. You know? <laughs> and so that's when I bought the first Ramones record. It was an A pick of the month. So I put it on and I'm listening. You know, oh, what's the other side? Listen, every song's the same. <laughs> uh, I'll get used to it. And it's nothing for like four playings. So I had a 16 millimeter projector in my apartment. And so everyone from New World Pictures, everyone who worked for Roger Corman, we were like a movie cult. You know, we were like the Jesuits of, of uh, cinema. We didn't do anything but work in the daytime and watch movies at night. That was kind of it. And so one, Joe Dante had a, a collection of, of illegal stolen 16 millimeter prints of movies. And when I say like two, three hundred. Yeah. So like the history of movies in prints stolen from the army and from various colleges and so forth. And so we used to watch every night. So they're over my apartment. And they go, what are you listening to? I said, oh, you guys got to hear this. All the New York critics are crazy about the Ramones. You, you're not going to believe this. So I put it on and about 10 seconds and I, here's the joke, guys. Play the next guy. See, every song is the same. And <laughs> as I'm doing it, the needle is landing on. Uh, second verse, different from the first, you know, or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And, and as I did it, I realized it hit me like it's on purpose. That's what the, it is. It's really stupid fun. You know, that's when I got turned on to them, you know, and because I was experiencing all that at a distance, like the beginning of hip hop was in New York and I was in LA and I'm, you know, I'm just pretty serious rock fan. So I was following all that. But when I heard, and so I bought the second album, but when I bought rocket, um, rocket to Russia, you didn't have to read any reviews at that point, you know? And it was, I just thought it was one of the greatest rock and roll albums I'd ever heard. It was, 
you know, when people ask me what I like about the Ramones, I always say the same thing. It's like a girl group backed by chainsaws. Yeah. You know? yes. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what we wanted to ask you. Like, uh, I do remember reading that you loved Rocket to Russia and yeah. then, and which eventually became into you directing Rock and Roll High School. But we know Rock and Roll High School went through like a lot of different iterations, you know, before yeah. Rock and Roll was like the chosen genre. So like, what was Disco High going to look like back when you were first like workshopping this whole, this whole thing with Roger well, Corman? I, um, if you go back to where it really started, I was in high school and I would board in high school and would look out this window, which I've since gone back to my school and taken a picture out that window because it's still the same. Mm-hmm. And that's where I just let, you know, not apply myself, so to speak, as they <laughs> used to tell me and dream of this stuff. And one of the things was that there would be rock concerts. Uh, my favorite bands would show up at the high school and play a concert or right out the window and then imagine it. But it was never like the Beatles. It was only the nastier bands. So it was the Stones, the Kinks of You Really Got Me, and um, the Yardbirds because of I'm a Man. And that's what they would play and I would literally watch it even though it wasn't there. So uh, when I got started to work for Roger, it was um, around that time he was doing high school movies you know, and uh, nurses movies. That was like the genre, the three girls genre. Uh, so even though they were nurses, like Candy Strike Nurses took place in a high school and summer school teachers and um, night call nurses and all this stuff. So there was a steady, they made them for like $160,000 and that was your gateway. That was your first directing chance. And Joe Dante and I didn't have that happen. We ended up being the trailer department, production department. And we gained Roger's trust really quickly because uh, it was one of those confluences of things that happened to two groups of people that worked out perfectly. Now, but prior to us and Roger starting New World Pictures, he had needed some film student. He needed someone to re-edit a Russian science fiction movie and add some monsters and girls in bikinis. Okay. <laughs> Right? Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. wherever you can find yeah. them, just pop them in there. Yeah. And and fit them in. So he calls up UCLA and says, I'm looking for film students to work for me, you know. Uh, and this has got to be 61, 60. And they go, he go, who's your best? And they give him a name, and that's when Francis Coppola walked in the door. And so Francis Coppola's first job is doing, on a New World picture, doing a vagina monster and a penis monster battling each other. <laughs> and I've seen the outtakes, and you can see him with the <laughs> So That's a good start. All that worked out because Bogdanovich was next, you know, and yeah. he started. And then when he had his own company, he hired um, – Marty Scorsese, who had been my teacher at NYU, and had, he was doing Boxcar Bertha, and Roger fired uh, a director. A director dropped out on Night Call Nurses, and that's when a, uh, a friend of mine, Jonathan Kaplan, who also worked at the film Warriors, we were a grump, you know, group of people, he was hired to literally get on a plane the next day and come out and direct Night Call Nurses and rewrite it, and they'd start shooting in two weeks. And... Um, he thought his career was over when it was done. If you've ever seen Night Call Nurses, you'll see it was career hanging by a thread. And uh, it made money. So he did uh, student teachers. And then gradually we all came out there. So I was working for Roger and I had this idea of a high school movie with music in it. And I loved 
the early Todd Rundgren records. And there's this one, uh, I don't remember which one it is right now, and I don't want to break this up to try and find it, but there was a song called Heavy Metal Kids. Oh, yeah, it was on the Todd uh, album. Yeah, and I thought, that's a great name for a movie, you know? And (laughs) I liked the song, and that was like, in my head, I started writing out various treatments. And then... After working there for a while, and uh, we had done Hollywood Boulevard, which I don't know if you've ever seen. Um, Hollywood Boulevard is the first movie that Joe Dante and I did. We both co-directed it. Uh, Mary Warrenoff plays, uh, spoiler alert, an actress who kills everyone who she's jealous of. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think we got to see like yeah. some, some bits of that online. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, it could happen. Yeah. <laughs> All the action scenes in that movie are from other movies because we had cut all the trailers for two years now of all these movies. So we knew every bit of action scene because we had put them in the trailer. So we just, very Eisensteinian, just (laughs) pulled out all the action and said, okay, we need three shots of the girls firing guns right to left. And then the people in the Philippines would fall out of the frame left to right. That's just, and that was Hollywood Boulevard and we made it for $75,000 and I got paid $85 for directing it. Now, Roger liked it, thought it was really funny. Um, Parts of it are still really funny. Parts of it have not aged well. Ah. Um, And so, (laughs) what do you want? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, lots of Corman movies are classics, but every now and then you might see. uh, Yeah. 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 Yeah, Every now and then. Uh, Yeah. I wouldn't want to sit next to Carolyn during certain scenes. (laughs) 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 Like, what were you thinking? You thought this was funny? (laughs) <laughs> but but next you did rock and roll high school, which right. which is very and, funny. Yeah, exactly. So Roger said you can do you know now he's going to do a high school movie. Roger won't do one. It was that was called Girls Gym, and the hook on that was the reason. See, you had to have a something that would go on the poster, something you could sell the movie with, and then he would let you do whatever you wanted as long as you gave him plenty of that. And that's how people like Jonathan Demme were able to make Caged Heat, a women in prison movie about the mistreatment of prisoners, as well as naked fights in the shower. You know, yeah. So that was what you did. You added something that meant something a lot to you. And that's what Roger's whole philosophy was. You know, And so um, Girls Gym, all right, I got to do something good and I have to have naked gymnastics. Okay, that's the what he's going to sell. And so... Joseph McBride wrote it, and he was uh, he went on to become a leading film critic and authority. He's written now books about John Ford and Preston Sturges, and he wrote a really good draft. And it was Joe McBride who came up with the idea of the kids going on strike, and then he said, "Why don't they blow up the high school at the end?" And I said, "No, <laughs> that's too mean. No." And about a week later. I said, I can't make this movie without blowing up the high school. That's like the best part. (laughs) (laughs) And so we went to Roger and we're talking about Girls Gym and the fact that we're having trouble casting it, you know, because what actress is going to do naked gymnastics, you know, and be like, you know, we were and. I didn't think it was funny. And I said, but what we really want to do, can we change it away from the naked gymnastics if the kids go on strike and they blow up the high school at the end? And he goes, yes, okay. If you blow up the high school, you don't have to have naked gymnastics. 
So you just, you essentially just said, what if we just keep, what if we just do an entirely different movie? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and, and that's when it was still called Girls Gym. And then I had to save this uh, futuristic samurai biker film called Death Sport, which I think I sent you the trailer from hell about. Yeah. And so he calls me up and he wants me to say that. And I know you're hard at work at Girls Gym, but if we put Girls Gym off till the fall, I absolutely need you to come in and save the movie, re-edit it, reshoot it, and do the trailer, you know. And you have six weeks, you know, and rewrite it. And there was, so that was kind of the way it worked while you're doing your other trailers. So that, I did that, and then we realized that, and that's when Roger, in the course of that, said, you know, if, um, let's make your, you know, I know you want to do, because in all the, the scripts, there was a band in the school. Mm -hmm. And that's, so you want to, you know, I see what you mean, uh, Saturday Night Fever and Grease and all these movies are making money, so let's make your high school movie, um, um, musical, high school musical. That's what you want to make and so forth. And we'll call it Disco High because disco music is big and all those movies have disco music. And I'm thinking, I just want to throw up. That's like the worst idea. But I just said, great. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we're not really going to do that, are we? <laughs> and so that's, I now had a movie, so to speak, in development called Disco High. And we asked, Joe McBride had done enough, and so we wanted to make it into a comedy. And so among the things that Joe Dante and I did, we were like doing everything. You know, we would do the color correct on Cries and Whispers by Bergman, you know, cut the trailer for Truffaut's Small Change, and write and cut the trailer for TNT Jackson, she'll put you in traction. Of course, it's Joe Dante, who later went on to do Gremlins and Gremlins 2, yeah. among many other things. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. So could you tell us more on how you were able to get Roger Corman uh, on board uh, with rock and roll music instead of disco? Because like you said before, you're like, disco doesn't seem that rebellious at all. Right. right? And, and I've got two writers involved who were film students who had come out and sent me and Joe their student films and they were really funny and stupid and we thought they were great and then I met them when I was doing Death Sport because they were playing mutants in it and um, I said so you guys are mutants and they said yes but we really want to be as writers uh, and <laughs> so the mutants and Mike Fennell and I took a lunch meeting and Vasquez Rocks while I was shooting and they rewrote Rock and Roll High School 
And the first, the deal was you write 10 pages and um, we'll see if we like it. And the 10 pages they wrote was Eagle Bauer. That's what they wrote the first weekend, that whole thing. So then we sat down and went through every scene and we still had to call it Disco High, but it was really clear from the very beginning, it was never gonna be called Disco High. Yeah. It's just no way. And so Mike Fennell, who produced it, went on to produce Gremlins and a million other movies and I devised a plan where we would get a rock band committed to this. And that's when we went and saw Todd Rundgren and to ask him about it and I would told him the story and plugged in all his songs and he didn't respond well, but he did say quite brilliantly, like, this sounds more like a movie called If by Lindsay Anderson, which it was an homage to. Yeah. Uh, so then we, we realized that maybe also we had to keep the humor going during the music and there isn't a lot of rock music that's inherently humorous, you know. Um, there's a certain amount of you know, self-importance, you know. There's a funny song, maybe, but there isn't like underneath chord changes and stuff like that, or certain uplift. So that's when Cheap Trick was starting to happen. And so I was listening to Rodney on the Rocks, Rodney Bingenheimer all the time, and he would play Cheap Trick. And I really liked it, and they had an album that hadn't been released yet called Live at Budokan, which is one of the great live records. So that, so we went and met with Cheap Trick and talk to them about it, and they said, let's make it, that sounds good, and you can use Live at Budokan as the basic tracks that we will play back to. So that was a huge thing, you know, because yeah. that's a great record. And, you know, I and we hadn't come up with, you know, a theme song for the movie yet, I was still, and then we had, I had to go into Roger's office and break the news. So now we absolutely knew that it was had to be called rock and roll. There was no doubt in our minds at that point because we'd be, spoken to two bands and it was firmly in the mind of me and Mike and we had to face Roger. And Roger had a, a lawyer there named Paul Amund who had worked at Warner Brothers. So Paul was invited into this meeting and I described the difference between disco music and rock and roll. And disco music is the music of your parents and middle class people or lower class people who are upwardly mobile. You know, they want, that's what they're, that's the secret. That's why Saturday Night uh, um, Fever is so good. He, he said, wants to better himself. You know, you can't better yourself by blowing up a high school. <laughs> <laughs> Says you. <laughs> so there was a moment of reckoning. I said, I need rock and roll music. I need Roger. Have you ever heard The Who? And, and so I, this was it, kids, you know. I had to do it right here. Yeah. So I imitated Pete Townsend, you know, and described Pete Townsend destroying his equipment, which I had seen from five feet, you know, 10 feet away. It's somewhere or other, I have one of Keith Moon's broken drum heads. Um, and so smashing up the equipment, I said, that's who blows up the high school. Rock and roll band, who else? But, you know, kids have anger, that's what, it has to be music that scares your parents. Yeah. And that's like, you know, that's where he made his millions, you know. We meet with Warner Brothers and um, that Paul Amundsen, and we have a meeting and they're like, um, uh, we start talking about bands. And that's when they played us the first VHS of Devo. Devo hadn't even recorded. They had done some film of themselves. I don't know if it was 
VHS or Super 8 or what it was of them in the flower pots and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we thought that was great, but it was too far from what we were doing. The name Van Halen came up because they were starting to really happen in L.A., but I had heard them on Rodney and, you know, it didn't seem like they were right for it. And then they asked me if I had heard. Now, they were impressed that we knew every band that they mentioned. So, you know, Warner Brothers. So they said, hey, do you listen to Sire Records? Because we have this other label, Sire. I said, yeah, Talking Heads. You know? And they said, what about the Ramones? And I said, oh, I really like the Ramones. Well, what about the Ramones? And it just, I wish I could say that it came to me in a flash of white light. <laughs> but it, it, <laughs> it, it, it seemed to me a funny idea and that the tone of their music was so um those chord changes and the, the influence of the surf music in there that upbeat stuff balanced with the sheer aggression seemed to be a good idea and that's what and then as i thought about it and um we kind of said yeah yeah we'd love to and they go well by the way danny fields is in town uh, with uh, Linda Stein, why don't you go meet with them? Say, set up a meeting. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, boy, it's actually really funny that Riff Randall is in love with Joey Ramone, you know, because before that, it had been Rockstar God, you know, it had been Rockstar on a pedestal, even though she was never, ever a groupie. Yeah. Right. She was, this, and it's the secret to the movie's success is. It's not just the Ramones, it's Riff Randall. And that Riff Randall is a, uh, if I had known you at the film Maurice Carolyn, you would have spent $3 to get into the early show on Friday and talked your way into the other three shows. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like me. You would be hanging out in the lobby with all the other rock freaks. And Alan, is there any empty seats? You know, And that's, that's where I met Riff Randall. Riff Randall was one of those people, and I've stayed in touch with her, with Gail. And she became the manager of the New York Dolls and all this. So um, that was kind of, so that was the secret, is that Riff was a pure heart, you know. And the idea that she would think that Joey Ramone is sexy is so funny. And yet so, you know, how... Uh, when you're a teenager, you want to belong to a group of people. There's music that speaks to you, that gives you a culture that your friends have, and you all bond and you start doing this stuff. And I always thought that Riff Randall had been a cheerleader the year before. Mm -hmm. And not unlike myself, nice Jewish boy, all of a sudden here's Bob Dylan, you know, and the times they've got to change, you know? And so that's how I saw Riff. Oh, yeah, she's great. I mean, I, I know that you probably get this a lot, but like a lot of girls love. I mean, I've been watching this movie throughout the years, like several mm -hmm. times. It's I mean, at first I was thinking like when when you first watch this movie, you're like, oh, this blonde, you know, peppy woman is a, is a big punk fan. But then when you watch the movie a couple of times, you're like, oh, that makes total sense. And the fact that she's not a groupie, she's she's she writes her own song that she wants the Ramones to see. Right. Yeah. I want to ask how. How are the Ramones like as actors? I don't think the word actor, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're really good at being Ramones. <laughs> Does your mother know you're a Ramone? Well, everyone's paid the fucking line. So I fly to New York to meet the, well, you know, the, you, I think you told the story of Danny and, and them, uh, 
hearing the pitch. Yeah. You know? And I, what you left out, I think, was that Danny and Linda were smoking joints the whole time. <laughs> I was like winging it, putting Ramon songs into the script as I was telling him the story. And then at the end I said, and then when the Ramones, you know, play a song in the school and then at the end they all come out at high school and they're gonna give up. And Danny goes, no! <laughs> I said, but Riff says, we're gonna rock the roof for it. And while the Ramones play the theme song to the movie, we blow up the school. And like they both go, we're in, we're in. <laughs> I love, <laughs> I love that part. Yeah. And then we go to New York, and I meet the Ramones, and I met in their dressing room. Um, oh, the great rock critic, uh, Lester Bangs. Yes, Lester Bangs. I met that night, and I met uh, Tina Weymouth, and so forth. And I hung out with the band, and I got a real sense of who they were, and I got a sense of like. I didn't realize how, um, in meeting them just for that weekend, how unable they were to be anything but Ramones, okay? So Joey <laughs> was OCD and rarely spoke. Yeah. You know? yeah. And he came over to my house and we watched the movie and before we left he said, you know, thanks, I had a really good time, you know? And then Monty comes up to me and goes, wow, he really loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and you could tell that John was the one Every band has to have John in it. Yeah. You know, The Temptations had Otis. Every band has to be, the dead had have Jerry. Every band has to have someone who drives it all forward. And it's best when they have a vision, too, um, which is what John does. And, you know, Jerry Garcia has a vision, too. So they, you know, Pete Townsend. So, um, and Jeannie was serious drug problem. And he actually ended up in the hospital on two weekends. And he wore his little hospital band all week. It was, he was going for a third, but we wrapped. Um, and uh, Mark, I got to know. And so when it came to acting, I basically just had to walk him through it because they never really could read the They never read the script per se. Now, they didn't study the lines. It was, so that's why there's 13 takes on pizza. Good, I want some, whatever he says. Oh, is it 13? I mean, because we've heard like it's been like 40 takes. Of course, so sometimes maybe it gets exaggerated or something. Uh, it was a lot of takes. Okay, so let's just go with a lot of takes. A lot of takes. And, and, and thank you for reminding me about the Mr. McGloob thing. Oh, I wanted, yes, I wanted to ask, like, at what point did you, because the, the, the story is that, it's not even a story, it's in the movie, is that uh, <laughs> Joey's supposed to say, well, well, supposed to say, he's supposed to say, we're going to come and pay you and Mr. McGree a visit, but right. he, for some reason, says, going to come pay you and Mr. McGloop a visit, like, right. but he, he doesn't, no. he says Mr. McGloop, it's the wrong name, at what point did you think, fuck it, let's just keep Mr. McGloop? We kept Mr. McGloop. I don't think there was any doubt. Okay? <laughs> but the atmosphere of the movie was we had a script, but a lot of stuff we we embroidered on the spot, like the hall monitors. The people at the hall monitors are pushing into the locker. That's one of the writers. And we would just make that shit up. And while we were lighting one thing, we would do that in the hallway. And um, so a lot of stuff got made up, for instance, there's a hall monitor. Oh, Riff says that she um, she had to miss school because her goldfish died. And, you know, they bust her when they find out all this stuff and they bring the goldfish in. And <laughs> see, it's a lie. You know? <laughs> Such a stupid dance. <laughs> and the goldfish. And so 
I turned to one of the hall monitors, Daniel, and I said, you know, these guys are supposed to be really fake mean. Eat, will you eat the gold? Do you eat sushi? And he goes, yeah. And he says, eat the goldfish in this scene. <laughs> eat the goldfish? I go, yeah. I'm not eating. Go ahead, Daniel. It'll be funny. So he, that's why he, it was that kind of thing. So when Joey says, Mr. McGlue, Fritz, the hall monitor, can have a little goldfish tail sticking out of his mouth. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Is, is there any point during the filming that you were thinking, like, maybe getting the Ramones was a bad idea? No. Okay. <laughs> good. We didn't know no, you were good. having your heart of darkness moment. It was like one five-minute stretch. Uh, we were getting ready to burn all the records, and the Ramones arrived at the high school, and we had all these records, and I brought in my favorite records to burn them as a sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. And when it came to shoot, I couldn't find them. And so we didn't know where they went. And then somebody said, I think Joey took them. So we checked and Joey looked through every record <laughs> and he couldn't bear the thought of these records being burned. So I told him, I'll, I'll buy you new ones. <laughs> I, was, I was mad at him for like, you know, five minutes. Yeah. But Joey and I became very good friends. And all that stuff that you talked about you know, that year of doing the Phil Spector and so forth. That is a, a time we spent a lot of time together. And when I hear Danny says, I think of Joey and Linda in, you know, in the Tropicana and, and you know, my wife making a cake for his birthday and us hanging out together. And then years later, we played a lot of um, uh, uh, Trivial Pursuits. Yeah. And until you played Trivial Pursuits with the Ramones, first off, they always pick the same category. Which is geography. Because <laughs> <laughs> they've toured constantly. That's it. They know Perfect. where everything is. You can name any country on earth and they can tell you what's you know closest to the arena. <laughs> and so we're playing one time in Didi. The idea also is to get the other team as drunk as possible. Yeah. So all this tequila and Didi's, I put up for the win, Didi. All right. Science question. Let's see if you get it. What weighs 100 trillion tons? The sun. Your mom. <laughs> you just did it. Yeah. He said, uh, the answer is the earth, and Dee Dee said, your mother. <laughs> Which is the right answer. <laughs> well, obviously. This is the mysterious lost twin of Dee Dee Ramon. You guys were separated at birth. <laughs> it was in Mickey Lee's book. Yeah. <laughs> I read all the Ramones books. <laughs> but so I, I stayed I friends with Joey a lot. And, you know, when he got sick, I was really broken up about it. And, yeah. You know, and uh, he would talk. We talk a lot about music. And every year on his birthday, I'd be in New York because of television scheduling. And we'd go out to Indian food. And that's I gave him a bootleg of that Who concert from 68 that I had been at. And he had turned out had been at it. The one that just got re-released, which I highly recommend. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we just were talking stuff. And when he got that Louis Armstrong song, uh, What a Wonderful World, which I love, um, he asked me, if, what you know, had I ever listened to Louis Armstrong? And so I said, yeah. So I made him a mix of Louis Armstrong. And when you ever, when you went to Joey's apartment, it was not filthy, but uh, uh, cluttered with coffee cups, take out coffee cups that were all half finished and not put, that was just left there. And stacks of CDs, 
just huge stacks of them. And they'd be on the couch. So when you sat down on the couch, it'll go like that. You know? And you never, he'd always play songs for me. That's where I heard ACDC, um, the one with the big bells. Yeah, Hell's Bells. That's it. That's where I heard that for the first time. And that's where I heard Metallica. And, you know, he kept trying to get me to like Kiss. That was never going to happen. <laughs> uh, and he'd always give you something when you left. So I have some things. Oh, that's you know. nice. Well, yeah. I mean, did you think the Ramones would love Rock and Roll High School as much as they ended up loving it? Because I know Joey went and saw it in the theaters as much as he could. Yeah, I don't. I didn't actually think about that part of it. You know, um, I was because what had happened was by the time in a battle of wills with the people in the distribution, they did not want to wait for the album. They hated the movie. Yeah. Roger really liked the movie. The guy in distribution went to book it, hated it, hated the Ramones and certainly didn't like me because I had Roger's ear and we did the trailers for him. Right. So he opened it in Texas and New Mexico in April instead of waiting till July when the album would come out, which is with the whole plan and drive-ins and it died and I got a phone call from Johnny that was, he was so angry, you know, that we didn't wait and that, you know, the worst audience they have is in New Mexico, you know, they've never been able to sell more than 150 tickets, you know, and you know, so then we went to um, uh, San Francisco with it and we did better. We did better and the band did promotion and so forth and then, uh, we were in Chicago with it, and a smart distributor who dealt with New World was had places on two double bills because everything you know, uh, you never played a uh, Corman movie alone. It was always on a double bill, usually with a Corman movie, or in the case of Rock and Roll High School, which had been deemed kind of a failure at that point, box office wise, at the bottom half of a double bill with another movie, and that was why we were losing it so much, but this one, I'm gonna tell you the name of the two movies. It was two movie theaters. So we're in like 50 movie theaters with the top of the bill in one was Grease and the top of the bill in the other was Dawn of the Dead. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I got that double bill. <laughs> yeah. right? That's the movie and Ebert and Cisco liked it. And uh, they said they ought to play at midnight. And so when two weeks later, it was in midnight in Chicago, and uh, I came to New York in August for an opening on on 8th Street. I think it was the 8th Street Playhouse, um, which I don't think is there anymore. Um, and um, all the punk rockers in New York showed up for that, you know, and Joey and all of them were at that. And uh, when, when Miss Togar sets the Ramones record on fire, it was, you know, you had burnt their gods <laughs> and the audience went crazy it was such a great screening you know and um afterwards they threw a big party for us at the mud club so that was about as much fun as i could have you know so you know when i go see it now like the hollywood forever cemetery it's really gratifying um I noticed a pattern of it's, mo it's more women than men in the audience. And usually it's a group of three or four women. I can see it as I walk through because, you know, I use, someone I have to say is like they're telling one of them who hasn't seen the movie all the jokes ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, you see this part. 
I mean, wait till you see the giant mouse, and the giant mouse has a mother, you know, and so <laughs> there's a lot of that, and um, I have had so many people come up to me. I had an actress come up to me and said that her life was misery in parochial school till she saw rock and roll high school. And she hiked up her skirt, and her and her best friend walked around the playground singing uh, Ramon songs to defy the nuns. This is when they were kids, yeah. not not in front of Alan Arkin. Yeah. <laughs> you have to make sure. <laughs> That's kind of the legacy, you know. It's a classic. It definitely, it's a lot of fun. That's what we said about the movie. It's a lot of fun, and then you get then the '80s teen craze where they blow up something at the end became like a thing. But where did yeah. that come from? Probably rock and roll high school. Yeah, I'd say so. Yes. Yeah, and so it's it's very nice that it's um, it has this history, and it's really nice that since then I've done so much. If it had just been that, you know, my life's not uh, that anymore. But I've done like hundreds of TV shows. I've done like 250 TV shows. I directed another 200. I produced, and between that and another favorite of mine is uh, Elvis meets Nixon. I did the original one in 97 in the Temptations miniseries and uh, uh, Heroes, the series Heroes and mm -hmm. Ali McBeal, The Dancing Baby and so forth. Oh, so I go back to my high school reunion, okay? And Miss Togar is a combination of three people. Uh, Mr. Romando, who is the school disciplinarian, Mr. Marty, who I think was the school principal, and this other guy, who I just think he was just mean. So they would, they like made my life hell because I was an intellectual rebel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I come back for the high school reunion and now I've got St. Elsewhere on the air and, and moonlighting and, you know, oh, you made good in Hollywood, et cetera. So Mr. Ramonda comes up to me and he says, oh, we're so proud of you. Because I remember you in high school, you were different. <laughs> and uh, a slacker. And, uh, <laughs> and I you made a movie uh, called Rock and Roll High School. I said, yeah. He says, I like to think that we were inspiration for that movie at Fort Lee High School. Obviously, he's not seen it. I said, Mr. Romando, I could not have made this movie for not, you know, you and my experience at Fort Lee High School. He doesn't know that. Miss Torgar's dialogue is about a quarter what he said. <laughs> and there's obviously no idea that I blew up Portly High School. So, you know. <laughs> oh, I think it's a wonderful place to end our interview yeah, today. Yeah, thank that was you, great. Thank, thank you. you so much. We really appreciate you joining us. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. All right, so that was our interview with Alan. Thank you very much, Alan. He's thank a listener, you, so I know he's going to say, yeah, thank you again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, of course, as we said at the beginning of the episode, next week is The Cramps. So, in honor of that, we're going to be playing our band this week, our No Dogs in Space band. We're going to be playing a band that definitely takes a couple of cues from The Cramps. They're out of New Haven, Connecticut. Their name is Killer Ken. They're so much fun. So much fun. Yes, check it out on Spotify or wherever. Uh, just a lot of their songs. It, it, it just, it's fun. It's fun grooving uh, summer music. Hell yeah. No, they've got a great, they've got uh, an EP over on Spotify called Bad Bad Mind. So we're going to be playing the title track from that EP. And if you dig this band, like don't forget that the bands that we play here on the show, the local, you know, the, the bands uh, that are, you know, are trying to get big, they all have band camp. 
uh, sites. So you can go buy their album on Bandcamp. You can support them directly that way. Uh, so don't forget that you can, there are so many uh, musicians right now that need support. Uh, so uh, yeah, if you can support them, please do. But here is Bad Bad Mind by Killer Ken. We'll see y'all next week with the cramps. Goodbye. It's going to be great. Yeah. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.